Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Sheila Jeffries. She's a radical feminist writer and activist who has worked mainly against male violence and for lesbian feminism. She joined her first women's liberation movement group in the UK in 1973. In 1991, she moved to Australia to teach at the University of Melbourne, where she's now a professorial fellow in the School of Social and Political Sciences. She moved back to the UK in 2015. She's the author of 12 books on issues such as the history of sexuality, lesbian feminism, prostitution, gay men's politics, beauty practices, the threat of patriarchal religion to women's rights, and the politics of transgenderism. Her latest book is Penile Imperialism, The Male Sex Right and Women's Subordination. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thank you for being on the program. That's fine. My pleasure. So let's start. I want to read a couple sentences from your introduction, and then if you could just start there, that'd be great. In, mm-hmm. in my book, Gender Hurts, 2014, I was critical of the transgender rights movement and its harmful impact on women's rights. In the years since it was published, the movement, which I understand is a men's sexual rights movement, has had considerably more impact internationally in rolling back women's rights, and a renewed feminist movement has developed in response to challenge men's prerogatives. So I think there's so much in those two sentences to unpack that people might not that, that a lot of people might not understand. Can you, can you help us all to understand that and then move on from there? Okay. So in 2014, I wrote the book Gender Hurts, looking at the way in which the male sex rights movement, that it, I, I tend to call transvestism these days because I think that's better, uh, affected women's rights, children, and so on. I looked at the effect on wives and partners, Uh, which I call psychological violence. I looked at the effect on children, which I see as a form of eugenics. Um, I looked at the effect on women's spaces and the clash of rights with women, and so on and so on and so on. At the time, very few others were interested in the issue, and there was really not much about it. In fact, I think in Australia, I was the first person to say on radio anything critical just as of about nine months before the book came out. So there was really nothing much going on and women were not really aware, people were not really aware of what was happening. And so I wrote the book as a sort of clarion call to let people know what was going on. There had been in 2004 an act which said, absurdly, that men could change into women legally. Um, And there wasn't much feminism going on at that time, so there wasn't really any opposition to it at that time. And in 2014, there was still, it still wasn't completely obvious, I think, what the threat these men were posing to women's rights was. But interestingly, since 2014, it has become extremely clear. Um, We have uh, situations where uh, the police are visiting women in their homes if they dare say that uh, men cannot become women. Um, We have women having to go to court and and, and so on and so on. We're we're in a completely different situation where there seems to be an authoritarian regime established by a male sex rights movement, by sex fetishists, male sex fetishists, which is extraordinary. And they've been able to get their legislation they want, to influence policy, to get into all kinds of organizations and influence what universities are prepared to teach and who they kick out. There have been campaigns against women academics. It's all on a different scale now, I think. And so, but the, the interesting thing for me is, though there has been a feminist movement that's been created to fight all of this, and there has been some success in rolling it back in the last couple of years, 
there are still even some feminists who are prepared to say that there's such a thing as true trans. In other words, they believe that men can somehow, innately, biologically, have an essence of womanhood. We have, we have no idea what this essence is. Seems to be high heels mostly, um, but somehow dropped into their minds and made them women, often when they're 67 or, or whatever. Um, yes, there actually do seem to be some who, who say that. And indeed, there are feminists who say things like, I'm not transphobic, which doesn't make any sense, since trans is an invention of a fantasy in the, in the minds of men. And there, there are people who say uh, they're, they're quite critical of some elements of this, this movement and what's happened or what's been done to women. But they say things like, you know, I'm for transgender rights. And you think, what the hell is that? The right to perform a fetish, like, you know, um, getting tampons out of the waste bin of a women's toilet and stuffing them up your bottom, which is one of the many, many manifestations uh, of this fetish. I mean, how would anybody think that this is somehow about rights? So I thought there's, there's lots of problems here that I needed to deal with. The way to deal with it was to go back to what underlies this movement, which is that it's a sexual fetish. Obviously, there are some who are not fully aware of that. The ones who talk about true trans and gender essence and so on are obviously not aware that it's actually simply a sexual fetish. So I thought what I'll do is I'll write a book which puts the so-called transgender rights movement or transvestite rights movement, as I like to talk of it, flat bang into the history of the liberation of male sexuality, the male prerogative, the male sex right, as I call it in the book, and the liberation of what used to be called, as a result of the sexual revolution, men's sexual perversions, but you mustn't call them perversions now because we need to be positive about them, so they're called paraphilias instead. I thought, if I drop or the, uh, the transvestite rights movement into this history, it will be clear what it's actually about. And we can stop talking about transgender rights and transphobia and true trans and all of those things and concentrate on what's actually going on. So what is, what is actually going on? Can you, can you give us this, this, I know that this could take three hours and we only have, you know, 50 minutes, but could you, could you give us a quick history of the men's well two things one is can you give us a quick history of the sort of men's sexual rights movement of the last hundred years and also can you define the phrase male sex right okay now the male sex right as i understand it is the idea which is protected by governments and legislatures and the medical profession and the sex advice industry and, of course, pornography and so on, the idea that men have the right to use women, even if these women have absolutely no interest in them. There's a whole section in my book about how very often older women want to do something else, water the garden, read a novel or whatever, but they feel they have to admit these men to their bodies, even when it's very painful and so on. I give loads and loads of examples in the book of how the male sex right operates and how it is protected. Men must have access to women. And I understand this to be absolutely fundamental to male domination. I don't think the male sex right could exist outside of it. I mean, an, exi an example 
of the male sex right that I talk about in the book is the notion of consent. Um, a lot of people may not be familiar what, with what's wrong with the notion of consent because it's promoted as something really positive. Women and girls should be taught that they need to say a strong no in order to stop men's sexual violence against them and men's sexual use of them. Now, this is absolutely ubiquitous. You know, students are trained in universities, children are trained in schools. It's an extraordinary notion of sexuality because what it's really saying is that the man can use the body of a woman who doesn't want to be there, who is not moving, for whose, uh, whose pleasure is absolutely nothing to do with what's going on. He can just use her, and she's supposed to be trained uh, not in sex equal sexual relationships, not in pleasure, but to be able to say a strong no to him. Now, of course, saying a strong no is almost impossible, apart from the fact that the man may hit her and he, or he may do a very bad mood or make, make it impossible for her to say no in very many ways. Uh, apart from that, in this society, both men and women find all sorts of circumlocutions around saying a direct no. So if you're invited to go to dinner with a, a relative that you don't want to go to dinner with, you will not say no. Uh, you will say, I've got to do something else and fight so on and so on. It's not polite to say no. To expect to women in an unequal situation or girls, young girls, to say no to men is fairly ridiculous. But this is the whole way that sexuality is constructed. The male sex right means of male initiative. Men approach women and girls. They try to force themselves on women and girls. And women are somehow supposed to protect themselves. They're to blame if the man sexually uses them against their will because they haven't said a strong enough no. Now, it's absolutely absurd. The very concept of consent tells you what's wrong with the whole construction of sexuality around the male sex right under male domination. Now, you had another part to that question. Oh, before we go there, I want to say one more thing about consent, which is, like you said, on the surface, it's like, you know, I don't know, there's, there's something to it. But I was writing about this a few years ago and saw a great example of um, of they were saying some some same some same people who were very sort of quote sex positive were also saying that because of the hierarchical relationship between a police officer and a civilian is it ever really possible for a civilian to fully consent to a search and mm -hmm. and this is i mean that seemed to be to me to be making the precise point you are too Mm -hmm. which is that if something's going to happen to you, which could be painful, unpleasant, problematic, or dangerous, only in those situations it does the idea of consent come into question. It's usually, you know, sawing your leg off in surgery and so on. You sign a form saying that you consent. So the idea that consent should be something to do with sexual practice, which is supposed to be about pleasure, between human beings who like each other. I mean, it's absurd that uh, consent should enter into it, in fact. And it gives us a very clear view of the whole problem we have with the construction of sexuality. So another word for consent is acquiesce. And I got to tell you, I don't want to have sex with somebody who acquiesces to sex with me. It's, 
you know, and I don't... But it is, I think that's the normal way in which sex is had, I have to say to you, generally. Oh. I'm not saying that there isn't pleasurable and egalitarian sex happening in some situations. Of course, very often women want to do sex with uh, partners, but the majority of what's going on, I suspect, is not that. I don't know whether you think this is jaundiced look, but all the research I've been looking at and the stuff I talk about in the book suggests that, as a general rule, enthusiasm is not what's going on out there. Oh, I'm just I'm just agreeing with you that that um, you know I would not want my partner to consent to sex with me with the same enthusiasm with which I would consent to a detective searching my house. Indeed, or having your leg removed. Exactly. Um, okay, so the second part was, can we give a history of the past 100 years, say, or 120 years, however many, of sort of men's sexual rights movement? You can take it further back if you want. Or start yes, more recently sure. if you want to. Yes. I, um, what I explained at the beginning of the book is that um, sex generally was um, regulated by the church, by religions as a general rule, um, and in most places in the West by the Christian religion, until the end of, for the second half of the 19th century, until God became unimportant, um, because huge numbers of children in slum areas in Britain and so on in the mid-19th century had no idea of the two Jesus was and so on. So religion was no longer significant and no longer in a position to rule what people should do sexually, which was about maintaining male domination through sex. Of course, it always has been for religions. So at the end of the 19th century, the science of sexology developed. It was also to do with the development of science generally. And the science of sexology was uh, uh, about doctors, uh, saying what should happen sexually. They did this research because they had patients, the psychiatrists who did case studies. They did research, they wrote books on the extraordinary things that men did to women and sometimes with other men, and what was correct and what was not correct. And they became the new regulators of sexuality. They stepped into the shoes of the church. And one thing they did, and I explained this at the at the beginning of my book is not only did they say male, that sexuality had to be male-dominant and that women um, had to submit themselves to it, and it was about penis and vagina sex and so on, and the women had to enjoy it because if they did, they would be subjecting themselves to male power and showing how much they loved male power, and that was a crucial regulatory mechanism. But not just that. They also, and it, that's very important for this book, is that they started classifying what they called the sexual perversions, that is the things that, uh, that actually um, were rather unusual sexually. Um, and it, the sexual perversions that they were looking at were things like coprophilia, love of urine, uh, love of eating sh uh, shit, uh, well, that's coprophagy, actually. Coprophilia is just love of the shit. There's urolagnia, which is the love of urine. Um, and all the other different interesting sexual problems that men had that were rather different from what the sexologists thought they should be doing. Uh, in my book, I say nobody tries to explain why this is. I mean, the sexologists might, some of them said it was, it was biology, you know, like they say about transvestism, for instance. Um, and some of them said, well, it was, you know, what happened to a boy at five years old when he looked at his mother's shoes or something. That would be a sort of more Freudian psychoanalytic version. None of them looked at this politically 
to, uh, although sexuality is, of course, fundamentally important in the relationship between men and women, it's through their sexual organs which actually differentiate them that this activity happens. So you'd think somebody would have thought, oh, maybe it's got something to do with male domination. That was never, of course, actually looked at. What I do say in this book is that um, male sexuality and female sexuality is constructed in relationship of power. So if we're going to look at the sexual perversion, so-called, we need to understand how that comes from men's power over women and that power relationship. And I go into that in more detail in the book. So at the beginning of the 20th century, we've got the development of a writing about sexual perversion, which is mostly uh, rather critical. Um, though these uh, sex, uh, psychiatrists are fascinated, and some of them actually did the perversions themselves, like Havelock Ellis was a urolagnist and used to get women who visited him, like significant birth control feminists from the US and so on, to urinate as they walked into his house so that he could see that, and it was exciting. Or he'd get a, a, a feminist to walk down the street in Knightsbridge into Harrods urinating so he could see it on the pavement and so on. So the sexologists themselves tended to be very interested in these sexual activities because that, those were their interests. But they tended also to be slightly critical. Now, that, te- that was dominant in sexology, the science of sex, really up until the so-called sexual revolution of the 20th century and the so-called sexual revolution, which, if you read the history books, it says that it was really positive because it was about liberating women's sexuality. It's always said to be about women. It's about women, it's about women, it's about women. Women's sexuality, women's pleasure, etc., etc. Uh, of course, if you read about it, as I have extensively and written about it, that's not what appears to be the case. For instance, the the main sort of sex writer in this country of the sexual revolution who became really famous all over the world, uh, Alex Comfort, who wrote the book The Joy of Sex, which was published first in 1973, his book was seen as the most wonderful sex advice literature that would free everybody from the shackles of the Puritanism of the 19th century. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. He says things in the book like... Women should dress themselves like a cross between a snake and a seal in black lycra because men like that. They should be happy to be gagged. They pretend not to like it, but actually they like being gagged. They should be happy to be you know, tied to the four posts of a four-poster bed. Um, they should accept, of course, something called buttered bun. Buttered bun is when lots of men... Uh, use a woman sexually in each other's semen. It's actually a, a, he- a homosexual act, of course, and so on. So when you look at what's actually in the literature of this supposedly wonderful, wonderful development in history, it is very clear that women are being made into sexual servants and being required to service what I now call, of course, the male sex right. So what happened with the sudden opening up of the sexual revolution, so-called, in the 60s and 70s, was that it wasn't just that women were supposed to routinely service men sexually, but also the so-called, well, the the sexual perversions, now called uh, paraphilias, were liberated. So um, if we... uh, Think about, for instance, uh, there was a man called Lars Ullestam um, who wrote a book on the sexual minorities in early 1960s. He was Swedish. Sweden was often seen as the sort of forefront of the sexual revolution. And he said that all of the sexual perversions needed to be liberated. Men should not have to feel 
um, ashamed of them. There was transvestism in there. There was paedophilia and so on and so on. They all needed to be liberated, destigmatized. These men all needed to be able to be out there and do their thing. So the liberation of the perversions was very much at the very center of the sexual revolution from the beginning. Uh, and transgenderism, as it's now called, wasn't called that then. Uh, Lars Ulrich knew it was just a sexual fetish. It was in there with all the other sexual fetishes. True also of Gail Rubin, who was a lesbian sadomasochist, an anthropologist who was writing in the early 1980s. And she wrote a very important piece called Thinking Sex, which was you know, about how uh, we should all proceed sexually, which was, again, about all the liberation of all the, of the perversions. Pedophilia was in there. Transvestism was in there. These people had no worries about the fact that it was just—it was simply a sexual behaviour and a form of fetishism and a form of perversion. They called it that. They knew it was that. So it's not really until the 1990s, in the case of transvestism, which is the sexual perversion of uh, pretending to be women by wearing women's clothing or doing the things that they associate with women for the masochistic sexual excitement, because the clothing and behaviours of women are seen as the behaviours and clothing of subordinates, so it's exciting for the men to be able to do them. By the 1990s, that changed in relation to transvestism, uh, because the transvestites wanted to destigmatize themselves. They didn't want to be associated with sex anymore, because they developed a political agenda, which meant changing the legal system so that they could pretend to be women in the law, recognized by the law, and so on and so on. So, I mean, I think a lot of people don't, don't really understand that history. They may believe the propaganda that was developed by the transvestite movement from the 1990s onwards, that these men are, you know, an unfortunate category of persons who are discriminated against because by some extraordinary miracle while walking down the road one day, an essence of womanhood was dropped into their heads by, by the stork or, or something of that kind. So that's what a lot of people think. They don't fully understand the sexual roots. So the second half of my book is looking at how the sexual perversions became men's sexual rights movements and moved towards freedom, legal recognition, and what we see now in relation to fat transvestism, which is an extraordinary authoritarian control of education, freedom of speech, and so on and so on. So... In the second half of the book, I look, first of all, at paedophilia. What I explain is that for each of these movements, and I look at sadomasochism as well, and I look at some movements that are just starting to develop, like nappy fetishism, naturism is coming through, and so on and so forth. There's a number of these movements, not all of them I write about in the book. But I explain that what happens in relation to these movements, and paedophilia was really the first one off the block, in the 1960s and 70s in the West as a movement. And it was called the paedophile movement at the time, and nobody uh, pretended that it wasn't a, a political movement. Um, what these movements did was they, they tried to influence the medical profession, changing how the medical profession saw them. So they, the medical profession said it was nothing to do with sex. These are perfectly ordinary people. And they got destigmatized in that way. Uh, they changed their names so that the, the terms that were used about them were nicer. For instance, paedophiles, um, those were, uh, were called paedophiles at one time and should really, of course, be called child sex abusers. 
um, they are now called minority attracted persons. So you have to change the language to massage the language as you destigmatize these perversions. Um, and they then um, created campaigns for public acceptance, they changed the law, and so on and so on. And all of the perversions that were liberated by the sexual revolution, no longer something to be ashamed of, but something that needed to be out in public space, despite the effects on women and children and the general society. All of these movements uh, to liberate the perversions used the sex te uh, same techniques and uh, carried on along the same channel. Some, of course, were much more successful than others. Sadomasochism, very successful. Transvestism, successful beyond the wildest dreams, I think, of the men in the US in the 1990s who really thought this up. I don't think they could have imagined how far it would go. Um, I don't know what you would like to uh, interject or get me to talk about in a little more detail here. Well, there's I. You mentioned Gail Rubin, and I want to just read a quote by Gail Rubin and a quote by somebody else to mm -hmm. to really make clear that you really are talking about you know all sorts of um, harmful sexual practices. Actually, there's three quotes I want to do. I'll just shut up and do the three quotes. First, Gail Rubin. This is from uh, that Thinking Sex. Like mm -hmm. communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it's difficult to find defenders for their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation. And she compares, at some point, um, attractions to children to having a preference for spicy food. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, never mind the fact I've never heard of somebody who has had to have years of therapy because uh, they ate hot and sour soup. Um, the next one is a line by Andrew Eckstein um, in an article called Why Queers Should Care About Sex Offenders. Queer theory obliterates the idea of good and bad sex and what should and should not be deemed deviant. And then the third quote, and then I just want you to respond to anything you want, take any of this anywhere you want, is um, a quote by Arthur Evans who wrote the book uh, Gay Craft, uh, Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture, um, he's talking about uh, how Pat Califia at some point had scratched or carved a swastika into a bound lover slash victim skin. And he asked... A Jewish woman, I believe, yes? Yes, yes, yes. And he said, what kind of person gets off by, sw by scratching swastikas on a woman's skin? And then he has this great line... We also have to reflect on the implications of what we do, both for ourselves and for the society at large. We have to do, for, do so for sex and for every other aspect of our lives. That's what it means to be a mature human being. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up is because this horrible thing has happened these past 30 years where if, any, if, if, if a person, if a male especially, but if, if a person has an orgasm, we are not allowed to do any social critical analysis of the act that led to the orgasm. And that's horrifying. Yes, that's absolutely right. If we think about the 
nappy fetishism, for instance, which is a reasonably new sexual perversion because it was very difficult to find any writing about it before 2010. I mean, what we need to understand is that the perversions are not created by pornography because, obviously, as the sexologist showed, men had these um, problematic desires in the 19th century before the pornography industry. But now, of course, the pornography industry picks up, promotes, enlarges the range of all of these sexual perversions. For instance, with transvestism, there's now um, sissy hypno-porn, where men can watch pornography that deliberately hypnotizes them by all kinds of repetitions and so on, into thinking that they're probably a girl. Um, but the, the pornography op, op creates perversions of its own that have not necessarily been thought about, and one of those is nappy fetishism. And I look at the development of this over just really a few years because it hasn't been going very long. So nappy fetishism is a part of age regression, and I'm not sure how much of how long that's been going on, but there's a huge um, area in pornography about a, uh, age regression, which is where men pretend to be. It's always female babies or female children because it's a part of transvestism. So they're always pretending to be female. So the, the whole industry which um, sells the paraphernalia for nappy fetishism, age regression, everything is pink. Um, the bibs are pink and the dummies are pink pink, uh, and so on. So the, the men who do um, nappy fetishism, age regression, are very much constructed in, in terms of their uh, sexual practice by pornography and are now, of course, by the industry, the shops and the online fetish sites and so on. And the huge um, lists of men corresponding with each other on Reddit and other forms of social media. I mean, one of the problems with nappy fetishism, of course, is that they, the men want to shit and wee in their nappies. And it's quite difficult for adults to lose control of their sphincters and so on and actually do that. So on the, um, the Reddit, the subreddit about nappy fetishism, I'm sure there's many, but on the one I was looking at, the men are talking to each other about how they managed to let go and actually wee and poo into nappies, despite their mothers having very carefully nappy trained them, despite all the sort of decades of um, knowing actually how to behave. So the pornography helps to create this. It's, all, it's, it's a fairly recent um, practice, but you might think, um, well, surely... It can't be destigmatized. I mean, surely this is something that can't be happening in public. Well, um, these men now are not just torturing their wives by getting them to change their nappies and wash their bottoms and so on and building special, you know, nurseries in the bottom of their houses for this to take place in. But also it's coming out into the public, and I've got some cases of this in the book, where men actually demand that women carers, it's always women, women carers, there's nothing wrong with them, but they engage women carers pretending that there is, and they have to uh, change the nappies and wash them, and I presume the men have erections and ejaculate as, as all of this is being done. Uh, the men demand that air, air hostesses do this, they demand that university lecturers do this, um, and so on and so on. So the practice is coming out into the public world. The men are emboldened now 
in a way that I think probably in the 1890s the old sexologists would have found actually quite surprising. And we've reached the point now, and I haven't got this in the book because I have to stop writing at some point, where there's a man in a prison who demanded nappies, and the nappy... Uh, the uh, prison authorities were deciding whether to give it to him. This is like men in prison demanding makeup, and then they demand to, to move to the women's prisons. I mean, it may be that the men in prison will demand that they have to have a, a proper nursery in the prison uh, and so on. So things that you would not have expected to develop are certainly developing and achieving respectability in a way that you would not have expected. I don't... I. I... I think that there are probably a lot of listeners who are thinking she's making this up. I mean, the, <laughs> I wish the, 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 this. Uh, I, I mean, I'm kind of stammering here because I, I know you've just described how we got here, but how did we get here? I, I mean, I, okay, I understand the sort of fundamental argument, or one of the fundamental arguments of queer theory is. Because at one point we thought that homosexuality was bad, mm -hmm. therefore, and because that is wrong, therefore, all forms, all restrictions on all forms of sexuality are wrong. I understand that that's an argument that's made, but that argument just seems so ridiculous to me that I, except for the fact that it's taking over society, I would have a hard time just not laughing at it. I mean, that, though, is exactly what Gail Rubin said, as you know, because you've read her work. She said that homosexuals were the first perverts, as it were, to come out and build little communities for themselves, get shops and businesses and become a part of society, and that this would simply be followed by paedophiles, uh, transvestites, and, and sadomasochists, and so on. Yes, it is an extraordinary argument, because, you know, um, homosexuals, lesbians, and gay men are not engaged in any practice that harms anyone else. Their practice is not formed out of um, oppressive power relations or about oppressive power relations. So, yes, it is an extraordinary argument, but all of the sexual rights movements from the paedophile liberation movement onwards said that they were basing themselves on the gay rights movement, and they did base themselves on the gay rights movement or the methods that have been used by the gay rights movement. It has to be said, though, in relation to the transvestite rights movement now, that the transvestite rights movement is aggressive and indeed violent in a way that the gay rights movement it could not have been imagined. You know, giving, giving people flowers and having rainbow flags and so on is nothing to do with what the transvestite rights movement is doing, which is rape threats and death threats and hanging up um, dolls made in the shape of female politicians. Um, at, at all of the stuff that's going on now, which is actually e extremely harmful towards women trying to be involved in the public realm, is nothing like what the gay rights movement was about. So we really are in very different territory, talking about something very, very different. How, I know again that you've, you've just gone through this for a half hour, but how did, how did these movements gain so much power? Well, that's an interesting question. If we just think about the paedophile liberation movement at the moment of the 1960s and 70s, 
Um, they argued that, yes, they were an ordinary part of homosexuality. And indeed, as I explain in the book, um, the Dutch homophile magazine at the time of the 40s and 50s just used to have um, photographs of boys on its cover and did indeed say that, homo that um, this form of child sex abuse was an ordinary part of homosexuality. I think that did persuade quite a lot of people, even though I think it's reasonable to assume that the vast majority of gay men have absolutely nothing to do with the sexual abuse of children. Wait, but wait, wait. there are some wait. amongst their number who do. One thing real quick, which is I remember, I've always remembered something that a gay friend of mine said to me in maybe 2010, which was, I have been struggling. He's a, he was an older guy. He says, I've been struggling for 50 years to break the public connotation of homosexuality and pedophilia and to destroy that public perception. And now mm -hmm. the queer theorists have gone and embraced it and they've destroyed all the work that I had done over the previous 30, 40 years. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? I do, but it's before queer theory because in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s, if you look at the literature coming out of the gay liberation movement, quite a bit of it says that um, paedophile liberation is a part, uh, definitely a part. And indeed, in the 1970s in the UK, um, I think it was paedophile information exchange. There were many, all composed of gay men, um, paedophile groups around in Britain at that time. And the National Council for Civil Liberties, which is now Liberty, um, em embraced the campaign. Pi was a, a, a part, uh, spoke at their conferences and so on. So... There was a considerable acceptance of child sexual abuse at that time. Um, and indeed, right up until the early 80s, I mean, I was one of the feminists in this country who fought against the removal of the age of consent or the reduction of the age of consent, which were the demands that came out of the paedophile movement here. And what happened was that gradually public opinion turned against um, because, of course, they put it all across as being about love of children, the children really wanted it, it's about children's sexual liberation. All of these arguments, which at the time of the sexual re revolution, went down reasonably well. But there was a change in public opinion, and in the 1980s, um, there was a movement against them. Some of the members of PI got prosecuted for um, having child pornography and so on. In the 1990s, then the remnants of a movement started to organize and come back. What I look at in my chapter on paedophilia is the, where they have got to now in the paedophile liberation movement, which is in the last decade or so, not only do they have a new name, the minority attractive persons, but they have managed to persuade uh, sexologists, some sexologists, um, some criminologists, I'm sorry to say often they are women, that actually they've got a sexual orientation. You see how it's apparently just like homosexuality, um, that is inborn and innate, something they can't do anything about. And now they say there are good paedophiles. There are good paedophiles who are called non-contact paedophiles, who've got lots of websites uh, saying how they are really good people because they control themselves. They don't do what they would really like to do, which is sexually use children. These are men who you know, somehow control their natural urges to do so. Um, and the non-contact paedophiles need the stigma removed that is attached to their practice. This is what's in academic criminology articles now. Because if people uh, stigmatize paedophiles, 
they will attack children because they'll feel so guilty and horrible about themselves, they'll feel they have to attack children. The only way to stop them attacking children is to destigmatize them and be nice to them. If they get public acceptance, they won't do this. I know it's an extraordinary idea. The, the catch-22 in this is completely extraordinary. But believe me, that is what's being written out there. So I always, at this point, I, 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 I tend to have a little sort of imaginary scenario. So imaginary scenario is that a man goes round to his neighbor and says, um, and I'm, I want you to know, because I'm coming out, you know, to get rid of the stigma, that I am actually a non-contact pedophile. But you don't need to worry, because I will not touch your Jimmy. No problems at all. I might have fantasies about him, but I won't actually touch him. And, and the idea that this should be normal, which is what the criminologists suggest, is quite amazing to me. I mean, when you, you know, follow things through to what they will actually look like, it can be quite surprising. So they've, they've, they've come a long way, the paedophiles. One of the things that I found interesting and wrote about in the book is how there's this um, non-government organization called Prost Asia. You do look at the website, which is supposedly against Western men going to Asian countries and using children in prostitution. But in fact, of course, it's not really against using children sexually, and it's got discussion boards where um, men discuss things like they, they make child sex dolls and they discuss you know, how to market them, what the new language you should use about them so that it's not stigmatized, and so on. And in one of the discussions, a man says to a customer, don't worry about having trouble getting through customs because we can send the genitals separately. Now, things like that, you know, bring me up short. I have to say, though I'm very familiar with these kinds of things and with this kind of material, it shocks me, even now. So what is the, what is the relationship between the gains that the women's liberation movement has made? How much of this... this this uh, increase in the power of the men's, the male sex right movement is at least in part a response to women gaining some liberation in some aspects of their lives. How much of it is a backlash? I think some of it is certainly a backlash. If you think about the development of the prostitution and pornography industries, in the last 25 years, there must be, you know, clearly is an element of backlash in that. I've written about um, strip clubs, for instance, and some research on men in strip clubs found them saying things like, it was so awful to have to obey a woman boss and do what she said. So it was lovely to come to the strip club where you had complete power and were able to do what you wanted to women and so on. So I think certainly the the huge power of the pornography industry, which, of course, is actually mainly about profit and organized crime. But nonetheless, the power of it uh, also comes out of men you know, wanting to get some of their power back. Not that they have lost a great deal when you think about it. Uh, but yes, I think that is part of what's going on. Um, and I think what happened in the early, by the early 2000s, um, the women's liberation movements gains 
well, I think pretty much taken for granted, and there was very little feminism going on. The, the first decade of the 21st century, there was very little feminism, which is why I think in the UK, the Gender Recognition Act, which allowed men to legally pretend to be women, why that managed to slip through. No feminists were asked, no women were asked, and so on. Um, I think that there was a lull when there was not a strong feminist movement. Women were not watching what was going on. And men, yes, were developing all these um, you know, discussion boards around pornography and prostitution, which are absolutely horrendous in their language and what men are talking about doing to women. And they're absolutely in the extraordinary cruelty they engage in towards women. And I think that, yes, what's happened, what happened was that they were able to develop their power because it's not just that it's a backlash about women, but that men communicate, they form communities online, they discuss. Uh, there are these sort of gentlemen's clubs online in which the porn users can spill out all this horrendous, frothy cruelty against women. Um, so it's been very good in that way that men have been cementing um, their their backlash, if you like. And of course, it's particularly the case with um, incels, involuntary celibates, which are extremely dangerous and actually do um, kill people, quite a lot of people, um, I think there's hundred or so in the US uh, and so on in various incidents. Um, and that's an example of the extraordinary rage of men that has developed. And I do think that the, the pornography industry and so on are a part of creating that. So now we've got a phenomenon we didn't have before. In the 1970s, men were not interested in what we as feminists were doing. They didn't come to our rallies or marches. They didn't abuse us. They had no interest. We had no worries about them. I was there. We never noticed men. Indeed, instead, actually, there were things called anti-sexist men's groups all over Britain where men would go to talk about you know, the problem that they were men and did have power and what they had to do to support women and so on. Imagine that now. Imagine that now. And the men were absolutely no trouble. Now we have got um, men not only doing all the online stuff, the rape threats and so on, um, but they are now going to uh, going up to women who are protesting anywhere, grabbing their banners, in some cases physically pushing them and manhandling them and causing some harm, or indeed... Um, at a Pride march a few days ago, a lesbian with mental health problems who considered that she was um, a man uh, was actually killed by a boxer who just punched her in the face. She was trying to protect two lesbians from him. So we've got a level of anger out there, which is totally, totally different. I think we can only really explain this as men reaching a point of fury and indeed fighting back. I never thought it would be dangerous to go to a women's march, but it's, it, we are in a different situation. So we have about five or six minutes left, and I've got two questions here. One of them you were just – you've said a couple times about the, um, the, the rape and death threats, the physical violence, and anybody who uh, speaks out even remotely on saying that woman equals adult human female or that – women should not be forced to share their prison cells with men or anybody who criticizes queer theory indeed um, is, has, has receives, immediately receives threats. It's just commonly accepted among the people who are fighting this that they will receive rape and death threats and that, That's right. 
And if they have businesses, those businesses will be destroyed. If they allow women to do something in one of their businesses, then they will get threats against that business. Um, you know, artists are being threatened. Of course, we know about J.K. Rowling, who's who's a writer, and so on. So yes, it's it's becoming extremely, extremely difficult. Academics and so on. But what's most interesting about it, I think, is that instead of the police helping, and that the several examples we've had in the last couple of months of these men being violent, or and some of their acolytes being violent, there are some young women who actually help them as well. It has to be said, um, but. What's significant is that the police do not protect women. They stand aside, even if they've been told what's going to happen. They watch what's going on. They do not protect women. Even if men are threatening women or pushing women, they do nothing. Instead of that, we have the police um, trying to accuse women of hate speech. Actually, they've just changed that. The government has said that the police should not be going around accusing women of hate speech. Uh, in the way they have been for not being nice to men. So we're, we're making headway. We're making headway on quite a lot of fronts, it has to be said. But So that's, that's why all of this can happen, is that the forces of power, the forces of male domination, are actually supporting what these men do. Even though now, and this would have been seen extraordinary once, this extraordinary aggression is by being directed at women. Not very chivalrous, I would have thought. Well, thank you so much for your decades of incredibly important work, and thank you for being on the program, and I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Sheila Jeffries. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.